boy, when I said we'll be right back, I didn't think it'd be that quick. But it, <laughs> it was. And joining us, and now we're ready for our next guest. This is, I told you, this was a jam-packed show today, people. Big welcome to Janice Engel. Hello, Janice. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Well, I'm so excited to be talking to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for making this incredible kick-ass documentary. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me. Uh, I really appreciate it. Well, I'm so excited by this documentary. I watched it, and I laughed. You laugh through most of it just because of who Molly is and her personality. You can't help but laugh at her. But we learn so much about what made Molly who she was, who this public person was that we came to know and love as one of the most outspoken political writers of our time. Um, and boy, we sure could use her now. Use her now, but you know, you just went out of, in and out a little bit. We're having a little bit, I think, of a hiccup connection problem. Can uh, you hear me okay? Yeah, Pam, yeah, Pam's got you. Okay. Is that is that any better? I'm right on top of the mic now. Yeah, I think that's okay. I just it was like almost like um you know like a phone thing. It just went out for a second. Huh? Oh well, it happens sometimes on the phoners. What can I say? <laughs> but all right, I'll I'll try and and stay like right here on top of the mic. But uh, no, we desperately could use a Molly Ivins right now in this world. So the timing of this documentary couldn't be more perfect, Janice. Thank you. I totally agree. You know, it, it, the timing is so perfect. And in fact, so, you know, making a documentary is um, it's a process. This took, this took, we just passed our seven-year mark. And uh, we, we technically finished at the six-and-a-half-year mark, but this is all part of the making of it. Mm-hmm. And around halfway through, we realized, and I specifically realized, that I needed to get out of the way. Every time we tried to push it through, like try to find funding, try to get this happening, it didn't happen. Once I let go and I allowed whatever was to come through to come through, everything fell into place perfectly. So much so that here we are. We're about to roll out Molly Ivins nationwide, and we roll out on August 30th, which happens to be her 75th birthday. Oh, my God. You tell me who's got this bus. <laughs> oh, my God. The stars have aligned. The movie gods aligned for this one, Janice. Well, and no doubt. And, and plus, the film is coming out at this time, which is the perfect time. It, we tried to get it out in another election cycle or during, you know, the last presidential election. It would have been buried. Right. But this is the perfect time. I mean, we got a call from Sundance. The week after the the midterm mm-hmm. in November, and I, it was I, I mean I jokingly said, but I really believe that Molly is driving this bus. Uh, well, I wouldn't be a bit surprised because Molly Ivins is the was the kind of woman that if anybody's going to come back from the beyond and have an impact, it's going to be her. I totally agree. She was a badass of badasses. What made what made you because you have such an eclectic resume of documentaries you've done. Milk Carton Kids. Anyone that hasn't seen this, they need to see it. It, it was on television. Wonderful. You did The Road to Miss America a number of years ago. Um but what what was it that led you to Molly Ivins and this doc and this story? 
Well, so, you know, I was not, I didn't grow up where I read Molly, Molly Ivins. I'm also a generation of a little bit after her. I'm a baby boomer. Mm-hmm. So I didn't grow up reading her, but she was in college. But even even by the time she was in columns, I was out in California. I grew up in New York. I went to school in California. So I jokingly said I grew up on the left coast and the other left coast. I was not part of her constituency. So I knew of her. I, I had seen her on Letterman's, I think, in the 90s. I had uh, known that she had done George W. Bush Shrub, The Little Bush, which I thought was very funny. But I really wasn't, you know, one of her readers. Um, around 2012, my producing partner, who had become my producing partner on this project, James Egan, had to make a film with me. We had wanted to do something together. And he told me you have to go see Red Hot Patriot, the kick-ass with Molly Ivins, one, uh, one, uh, a, a one-woman play that was written by uh, two sisters, Named Allison and Margaret Engel. We all have the same last name. <laughs> and it started Captain Turner. And I said, why? He said, don't ask, just go. So it was the last week it was closing on the ticket. I went, I laughed my ass off through the entire thing. And it was so good, I came home and I Googled Molly, and I stayed up till 2 or 3 in the morning looking at clips. And I called him back, and I said, what's up? And he said, nothing's ever been done. And I said, nothing? He said, nope, just the play. So we were off and running. And, you know, and that surprises me because Molly was such a driving force. Um, I I would love to turn on C-SPAN when she would be on C-SPAN on talk shows and and whatnot. Uh, Because the fact that whatever popped into her head came out of her mouth and it was unvarnished. It was unvarnished truth and such a joy and that always it struck me when I first heard about your documentary I was like yeah how come there's never been a doc on Molly Ivins before nothing nothing well think about it here's a woman who speaks truth to power yeah came up at a time where you know I mean I say she's a woman who speaks truth to power that's (laughs) yeah yeah but I'm bummed yeah, that's that's you know, the rim shot says it all with, with that one. Um, but now, what? How did you go about structuring and putting together this timeline, this through line of the documentary? Because there's so much that encompasses Molly's work, her history, going back to her days in college, then when she got her master's at Colum- when she was at Smith. Then her master's at Columbia. Um, how did you go about structuring this and then calling on your wonderful research department to pull all the archival material that you had to have gone through? Well, my research department is me. <laughs> Hello, and research me. department. <laughs> at Betsy Moon on occasion. I had a boots on the ground gal in, in, in Austin for a, a year or so. Um, and I went, went, I lived in, Mol, in the archives, Molly's uh, papers are housed at the Briscoe Center for American Studies at the University of Texas in Austin. So I lived there for periods of time. I, I've been climbing a mountain called Molly for the past six plus years. And when you do a deep dive dig, I mean, that's what it is. It's an archival, yeah. archaeological dig. If you really want to get, you know, find and, and get the stuff that uh, of, of, of who a person really is, mm-hmm. warts and all. And um, so I just, I started that way. The good news was Molly was on C-SPAN a lot. So that gave me, that was, thank you for the internet. Back in the day, I would have been going to the oh, library for yeah. 
Um, I found a lot of stuff on C-SPAN, but then we would Google stuff. We would find people. Doors would open. Somebody had this. Somebody would tell my producing partner, Carlisle, and I about this. And and, and we were just – and then I, we would find things. And I brought in on my, my other producing partner. I have a Holocaust education program called What We Carry that I created with Amber Howell. She's the co-producer on Ray's Hell. And Amber goes back with me for 20-plus years, and she is – both of us, we're like the archival detectives, <laughs> and we take stuff out. And you know, all of us, we we would we. It's a tiny but mighty team, mm-hmm. and we would find stuff. And only in the last year, when I was in the full edit, did I have um. I bring on a brought on a real archival researcher who was about to have a baby, so we only had her for a certain amount of time. And she, you know, I gave her themes um, and things that were happening. I knew quite a lot about Molly's life and the period she covered. And she found us a whole slew of screeners and stuff, particularly for current events and, and, and this and that. But um, back to your initial question, which was about structure. So how do you make a structure that's going to work, mm-hmm. especially when it encompasses a person's life, their entire life? You've got to really pick and choose. As I, I teach a film at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco, and as I tell my all my students, whether they be documentary or narrative uh, filmmakers, you have to basically... It's a terrible expression, but kill your babies. What do you leave on the cutting room floor? Mm-hmm. So the same process goes into making uh, a like figuring out your structure, especially in documentaries, because it comes together in the post-production part. Right. But initially, I have an idea of where I want to go based on that person's life. Then I have, and I break it down to that. Then I have themes that encompass that person's life. For instance, Molly speaking truth to power, populism, prescience. Courage, uh, different presidents she went after, you know, you know, whatever it was, and I just kept amassing and amassing and amassing. Mm-hmm. And initially, in the beginning, I did a structure based on her life, and I kind of had it somewhat linear, not completely, but it was broken up by scenes, so you could jump off that ship and then come back around. About year two or three, I was taking it around to different people to get funding, different media enterprises who shall not be named and two or three comments came back to me that well we love molly but she's dead and it's a biopic what i got yep she's dead and it's a biopic whoa around 2014 and i remember james egan and i who have been in the industry quite a long time looked at each other and we got spooked biopic and dead it like became like a four-letter word and so I, for the next two years, as I was amassing and culling the material down, because I did all the editing for the f- five and a half years I edited mm-hmm. our sizzle reel, our funding, I just kept culling down and kept trying to figure out a structure that would break that biopic. <laughs> oh, my God. And then, I know, right? And I, at one point, I took all the titles of her books, and I was going to, like, you know, you have to dance within that brand. You know, well, that would be chapter two, because her parents brought her into the world. I mean, I was crazy. And I moved things around, and I shifted things around, and I did string out. And finally, about oh, January 2018, I had lunch with the great Kate Amen. She's a documentary editor, Academy Award winner, just brilliant. And she looked at me, and she said, Jana, what's wrong with the biopic? And I swear for a moment, I looked at her, and I said, <laughs> You wanted to die. Nothing. <laughs> I, it's like she unleashed me from my own imposed prison. And so I got on a plane. And I flew to the East Coast, and I jotted down this new structure. I got off the plane. It looked mighty familiar. And I always take picture. I do index cards of my structure board. I went back to 2013, 
I looked at the picture. Basically, that is the film you see today, except for maybe two or three things added in. So wow. as I teach my students, first thought, best thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's It's all a process. It's an amazing process. But, you know, something that you do, and a lot of documentarians and a lot of viewers of documentaries, they don't realize the importance of a score to underscore your visuals and the story unfolding in your documentary. And you make incredible use of music and score with this documentary it keeps everything upbeat. Your documentary has the same kick-ass, upbeat tone of Molly herself. Thank you so much. That is what struck me from the get-go, and there wasn't a moment, even when you get into the more personal issues uh, where she was facing alcoholism and cancer, there was never, never were you not uplifted and entertained by watching the hilarious hijinks and feeling the life of Molly Ivins? That comes through in spades, and your music really, really helps with that. Thank you. You know, I really appreciate that you you say that. Music is, in all my documentaries, an extremely, extremely important uh, part one of the main parts, you know, music is the soundtrack to your life. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to find music that this is a Texas-centric soundtrack. This is the soundtrack to Molly's life, but it's also going to clue you into where were you when you heard rhythm, that type of beat. Yep. In your brain, you automatically get happy, or you go to that place that wherever it is for a personal memory, but then it makes you more prepared to take in what you're about to watch. So I, I look at music as a, a character to itself. Um, it is something that I, I have used, I, I've always scratch tracks. I throw in scratch tracks for my composers so they know the feeling, the pace, the rhythm. It is so hugely important. And it was important for it to underscore every aspect of Molly's life. And I think that um, we have about, I think, 10 needle drops, yeah. which I'm amazed that we were able to afford to get. Then we had an incredible uh, composer, Ethan Griska, who's been called the singer-songwriter of his generation, who is no slouch to comp- composing. <laughs> he is absolutely brilliant. He is also the grandson of John Williams. And he has worked with us on our Holocaust project. He has such a feel for it. So he would listen to a scratch track that... Um, Monique Zavoskowski, my editor, and I would lay in, and he would immediately take it back and bring us back something that had the same feeling, the same pace, wow. but took it to a whole other level based on Molly is. And that's what you hear, like, under some of those sequences that you, you talked about, particularly when she, she had cancer, or particularly uh, growing up in River Oaks. And, and, mm-hmm. and I just, it's about the family dynamic. Um, I love that cue. So music is a huge part of it. And there is actually one special story that I'll share, which is the closing song mm-hmm. at the end of the film, which is Your Sweet and Shiny Eyes. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, Bonnie Ray, Jackson Brown singing. Um, so I made a documentary with Jackson Brown a number of years ago. That was one of your first. Yeah. And, and he knew I was doing this. And he said, well, you know, do you know the story about 
when Molly was dying and Bonnie and I calling her and I said, uh, no, tell me about that. I did sort of know, but I wanted him to tell me. And he, uh, he said, well, Bonnie was friends with Molly through Annie Lamont. They were pals. And uh, he said she was dying and they called her up two days before she passed and they sang Your Sweet and Shiny Eyes a cappella over the phone to Molly. Oh. And so he said, would you like Bonnie and I to do that for you? And I said, yes, please. <laughs> oh, my God. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, my God. The story is great, but the performance is great. I mean, I, I fell in love listening to it, listening to it. But what yeah. a story to go with thanks, it. Thanks, Bonnie and Jackson. <laughs> oh, but you, know, but, you know, the music here... It goes hand in hand with your editing beats. It's not, it, it matches. The ebb and flow matches. It's not like one is rubbing the opposite of the other. And I real I so appreciate that you do that. Because as you know, there's nothing worse than having your musical beats and that ebb and flow and that cadence that goes against the grain of your visual editing. And here it's perfectly, perfectly melded and merged. So well done, Thank Janice. Thank you so much. So Thank you so much. I've done a number of music documentaries, I'm sure, as you looked at my CV. So that's, yeah, a big part of, and I was an editor for you, so it's an important, important part. And I was going to ask you about that because you you have such vast editing experience, you know how beneficial is that to you as a documentarian? Because the bulk of documentaries comes down to editing. It's a huge part, and in fact, as a, as a director, a filmmaker, I I'm so glad that I have that skill. Yes, it becomes so all encompassing that it swallows me up. But I I have to be able to edit them. I had a vast amount of material. I needed to cull it all down to get it into a bite-sized portion to bring on another colleague at Monique to edit with me so I could also step back and breathe and have some have another set of eyes. And we totally had, we had as I like to say, the Vulcan mind melt. We were like <laughs> six in a pot. In fact, James... James even came in and sat with us one day, and he was blown away. It's, just, it's like we were in, like, make the every Like, we were finished with other sentences. We knew exactly where we wanted to cut. It was like she just did her own thing, but we were so in tune with each other. And, and initially what my vision is that she and I really, that comes from, you know, why we're, we're telling the story in post. That's why we took, we're, we took a writing credit. We wrote it. Mm-hmm. The edit. Yeah. Oh. And I think that, you know, I think that has informed, I, I teach my students, you know, the best way to learn directing, you want to be a director, whether it's narrative or documentary or fiction, is edit. Yep. Why? Because you see all the mistakes. You have to be the problem solver. You have to find the way out. You see what goes wrong, whether it's through actors or performance or, or how it was shot, whatever it is. You have to troubleshoot and figure out how are you going to tell this story and the best way to tell it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I think one of the prime narrative filmmakers, as an example, is Tyler Perry, because, as he has said countless times, he's editing in his head, and he knows, because of, of editing experience, 
he can look and see how one scene is playing out. means, oh, okay, I don't have to shoot these other two scenes because I just got everything I needed in this one scene, and it saves time and money. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely in, in the narrative. I think it really does inform. I think it's, I think that anybody who, who wants to make films should definitely do some editing. It's, a, it's, it's an, an incredible skill. Well, you have an absolutely incredible skill as a storyteller uh, and a director. And this, as as so many of your other works that I have enjoyed and watched over the years, this one is my ultimate favorite. It is, as I said, it is absolutely kick-ass. And, you know, before I let you go, I've got to ask you, what did you learn about yourself through this examination of Molly Ivins? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, Molly Ivins, there's no mistakes. I believe there's no mistakes. And I, uh, James always says that I had to tell the story because he likes to call me mini Molly. Um, I found some parallels with doing this film in my life with Molly and who we are, an outsider speaking truth to power, not being able to play the game, no matter how much I may have wanted to play the game when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Um, I really believe that I made a choice about six and a half years ago to leave certain elements that I was dealing with in the film business, film and television business, and, and really do things that really matter to me. Hence my Holocaust education program, what we carried this, I began to teach. And something in me shifted. And this project... I am, I'm probably out of, I've made a lot of films. This is the one I'm most proud of. It's also the one that is most closest to me in terms of who I am. Mm-hmm. It opened me up in a way to step into my shoes and to really allow who, whatever is supposed to come up and out, come through me and come out of me in a way that hopefully will educate, uplift, and allow us to come back to the table to communicate with each other and find our shared humanity. Mm. That is what this project and modernizing has been a gift for to me, and I now get to share it with everybody who comes to see this film. Well, and again, everybody needs this film. If you're in Texas, August 30th, New York, September 6th, L.A., September 13th, and then it will be everywhere for people to see, and they need to see this documentary. They need to see it. Thank you. Janice, so I so much such a joy talking to you. I hope you'll come back on the show again. I would love to have you back. Um talking about more projects since you're always working. Thank you. I'd love to come back and share. Oh. That's what it's all about. And I love sharing. Oh, Janice, thank you again so much and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Have a great day, y'all. Raise hell. <laughs> Bye-bye. And that was Janice Angle, writer-director, Ray's Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. All right, that is the end of our live guest today. Now we're going to jump right back to Angel Has Fallen. And at the top of the show, you got to hear Gerard Butler, stunt coordinator Greg Powell, second unit director Vic Armstrong, and veteran stuntman, and of course Nick Nolte, talk about Rick Roman Waugh as a director of Angel Has Fallen. Now you're going to hear from Rick Roman Waugh and our exclusive interview talking about Angel Has Fallen. 
Angel turns the whole franchise on its head. Right, and that's what we wanted to do. And this very easily, Rick, this could be a standalone. Well, so it was an interesting story. What happened is, you know, and I think you knew this, but, you know, Jerry and I have known each other for a while. We've been wanting to work together. We've talked about a couple different things. And then he called me out of the blue, and he's like, well, I don't know if you're going to want to do this, but I just want to tell you that um, they are looking to do a third installment of the the Fallen franchise, but I told him the only way I want to do it is not to do another event film. I didn't want to do a sequel. I wanted to make a movie that felt like it was a pivot in a new direction that still gave you the action-packed ride of the first two movies, but suddenly became something new, and so... What he pitched me was that Mike Banning became the fugitive. And I thought, okay, that structure I like a lot because yeah. we could do something with it, but why don't we then trade it into an origin story? Why don't we make this where um, if you love the first two movies and you want to know more about Mike Banning, it's an origin story. Yeah. So the plot is about Mike Banning. It's not a plot about an event. And then um, the um, other thing that would be great is the people that don't know the franchise – it's a perfect entry point yep. because you could come into this movie and suddenly meet these characters and really in an in-depth, provocative way, hopefully, and then go back and watch the other two movies and have a that's great right. time and, and still have the action ride for all three. Yeah, and that's exactly what you did. And by with that approach and with the script you have, that is what makes this a Rick Waugh movie mm-hmm. because your hallmark, and we've talked about this before, is nothing is ever black and white. It's always, there are always shades of gray, and you like to explore those shades of gray. Everything was black and white in the first two Fallen films. Right. Good and bad, that's it. But here, and you carry this through, not only in the script, but as we meet the characters, as we meet Wade. Yeah, I knew he was a bad guy from the start. I knew how that was going to play. And it's Danny Houston. He can't play a good guy. No, I think there's something interesting that... Danny, um, Danny and I talk about and Jerry is um, there are other um, usual twists that you see in the movie that come up right yeah. we know that we, we've seen those before but they work and audiences love them right. and there is a way to hide the peas and the mashed potatoes and, and get away with mm-hmm. it but I felt like you almost want to know as a slow burn that, that this is not going to go right which makes you more empathetic for Mike because you realize that this is not just a friend. It's a man who spilled blood together. It, it is two mm-hmm. men that were in war, that were in Rangers, and are dealing with the same parallel issues of adrenaline addiction and the addiction to war. And um, and that there's a lot of parallels and similarities, similarities that they feel empathetic about. And even though there's this hint of, like, what the hell's really going on here, you're still going to give your brother in arms, your sister in arms, the benefit of the right. doubt and be there. So when the turn comes, it is more personal, but then make the turn personal as well. Make it about war addiction so that you can earn the ending. Mm-hmm. And you can earn the moments that feel like this is what lions would want. You know, yeah. this is what people that become that. And I'm sure you saw many similarities. This is what I wanted to bring was oh. that which I love destroys. Oh me. my god, yeah, that's you the know, I first wanted to bring thing. the documentary into the movie of. You did. And I told Jerry about. It. I said this is a really interesting thing to show that if Mike was a ranger and then he went straight into law enforcement, it means he's addicted to the gun. He's addicted to the sense of duty and honor and purpose. Um, and sacrifice that comes with that. And so I had him watch a documentary, and he got it. And I said, so you're going to meet Tyler, and, um, and I'm going to have Danny meet Tyler. And then when we got Nick Nolte, the Nick Nolte sat down with Tyler mm-hmm. and talked about the contrast of, of the Vietnam era to the modern-day era, right. what's going on with a father that realizes his son is not running away from war the way he was, 
he's actually trying to run back into war. Mm-hmm. And so you could play with these these themes, but have the movie be relatable to not only our military community, but our law enforcement community, first responders, professional athletes, anybody yep. that has an adrenaline-based job that is addicted to that, wants that, preserve it for at all costs. What are we willing to sacrifice to keep mm-hmm. it? What are we willing to bend to do that? And so you get into the moral gray of a character that we have a lot of empathy for, and we see these complexities at home. A, 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 a wife that knows that something's going on with him is trying to give him his space and be supportive, but has to is trying to confront it in a, in a delicate way. Yeah. And then you get to play with these things along yeah. the way, um, and and then create something that's provocative, so that hopefully. I give you a movie that has the dramatic complexities, but then also that you're attached to the action more, which you know is always my thing. My thing is always not trying to create mindless action, but be in it and be attached to it. Duh. But yeah, and that's one of the great things is as I'm watching the film, and especially as you do something that we haven't really seen in the Fallen franchise before, you you bring in some great ECUs of Jerry's space. That is not, has not been part of the franchise. Before. No, I wanted the filmmaking. Be, I wanted to. I wanted to bring, and I told Jules that right away. I said, and I told Jerry, I said, stay right there. And I put my hand right here, and he goes, "What are you doing?" I said, "That's where the lens is going to yeah. be. So get used to it. I want this. I want to bring the audience into your world, into your plane, so that they're not voyeurs watching people on screen. They are immersed in the people, and they are immersed in the action, and they are in this world. Mm-hmm. And you and, got it. And you know what I love there is seeing that. I immediately, and then, you know, when he, you know, he'd get hit with a migraine or, you know, the, the, the C2, C5. Yeah. And I have to admit, granted, it comes with the territory, but it also comes with the territory being a stuntman. Yeah. So I got the humor of it's that. It's all, it's this wear and tear. It's wear and tear the on, the, on the body. Going, you know, and I thought that was an interesting way to do it. And I really love that because we're feeling it. It's right. very palpable. But by the same token, I immediately flashed to that which I love. And when Tyler talked about just walking down the street, trash bags, yeah. black trash bags, he can't, he freezes because he thinks they're IEDs. Yeah. And I am, that, that's where my mind immediately went. Right. With those, in the very opening scene. Yeah, and you know, and you get to have fun with Mike talking about you train like it's real because you're dead when you you're dead when you don't mm-hmm. you're, de- you're dead when if you don't when it's real and you know you get to have your fun moments along the way but but what I try to make sure is that everything is based based in truth yeah and based in real world thing and that that's when you're at that level that's how you do train yeah you know? so I got to you talk about reality the drone technology Rick wow yeah it was the it was, you know, when I... Um, so we had Mickey Nelson from the Secret Service, he's a 28-year vet um, who guarded four presidents all the way through Obama. Number one, he is the real Mike Banning. Um, he was assistant to, um, director. They asked him to be the director of the Secret Service recently. He declined, and he's in the of private... Of course he did. Yeah, he's in the, he's pretty smart, but he's in the private sector. And I told him, I said, I want you to come on this movie with me, but I don't, I'm not asking you to... We're not going to make a tell-all about the Secret Service, and we're not going to show the security measures you guys take. We're going to fudge it enough that... It'll feel real to even you guys, but we're not going to give up right. our tactics. You know, that was very important. But we, I want you to really get into the mentality and the day in the life of the Secret Service. You meet Morgan Freeman in the movie the first time. He's a blip going by a camera because I wanted to feel like, no, this is what the Secret Service, they don't walk with the president. They're behind him. And mm-hmm. so that you feel like you know what you're in with that detail. And so when we started talking about the attack on the lake, you know, and we started talking about drone warfare and, 
And he said, yeah, this is one of our biggest issues. It's because we're using it in the military, we're using it in the Secret Service, we're using it in law enforcement, but so are the bad guys. Yeah. You know, and it becomes a very scary place because you can launch it from outside. And so what was the irony and um, was chilling was that while we were filming it, the president of Venezuela was almost assassinated by drone warfare. And we mm-hmm. were like, wow, okay, fact, strange, and fiction. And um, so, you know, we... But I also knew that there was a way to do that sequence to make it feel like it was Dunkirk or to make it feel like it was Japanese zeros to where these things mm-hmm. are. What I knew was real technology is that they are using these things in artificial intelligence with racing drones as swarms. So you could put hundreds at a time and in the air right. and they all act off of each other and can swarm on a target for reconnaissance, but now can be weaponized. And so I was like, that's scary. You're not going to... And then you basically have the invasion of the birds. You, mm-hmm. know, you have where there is no escaping it, you know? And, and we did something we haven't seen, but that you get to film it in a way that you felt like you got 10 guys from the Golf Channel that are just trying to literally chase these things, mm-hmm. you know, and make you feel like you were in a real-world setting. Yeah, and of course, my favorite scene, I gotta say, the 18-wheeler, the chase. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I think I, I'm not gonna go for a trilogy of those, but when I heard... <laughs> it, it was a, a... There was a version... You know, it was a page one rewrite when I came on. We yeah. kept the structure, but I completely redid the movie with Matt Cook, um, you know, over it. But it was interesting that there was there was a version of some kind of chase in that. And I was like, I, I want to keep that, but I want to do my version of it. And I go, <laughs> yeah, I guess we're going back. <laughs> I just... But the way the 18-wheeler, that whole sequence works so well. Number one, it's at night, it is pitch dark, and the only light you're using... Because you're shooting night for night there. Yeah, no, we had it's zero lights. It's just the lights on the truck and the headlights. That's it. Yeah, I wanted to feel like a Stephen King thing where it felt scary and you felt the jeopardy that Mike Banning felt in that. And I told him, I said, if we shoot this and it feels like an action movie, we have completely shit the bed. We have to make it feel like a real chase. It has to feel like you're watching an episode of 911, yeah. but it's on, on steroids. Mm-hmm. So that, and we did it in the sound design too, where you always felt like the camera had a shotgun mic on it so that mm-hmm. when you panned up to the helicopter, the the, the camera, the, the sound would chase it. Yeah. And then suddenly it would be very bright watching the helicopter and you were in with the police cars and you were in with everybody so that you felt like you were in this yeah. documentary type thing. And, um, you know, it was really funny like the first time we went out there and even Jules was like, come on, mate, you sure we got, we need balloons. I'm like, no, no balloons. We're doing this in dark. And Vic Armstrong was the one guy that got it and Robert Bimmel, his second unit director or second unit DP and we treated the first unit and second unit very different than I've ever seen on any film Mm -hmm. Um, we didn't do it where he shot the action I ran the actor through we divided and conquered so we would basically have a full blown construct of you're going to shoot these angles here but then I'm going to come around and have Jerry doing this part here and we're going to blow up this and we literally put two we used two units to create a synergy that it was one unit Mm -hmm. working the entire time um, and both shooting action at the same time. We did it on the lake. We did it on the, um, we did it pretty much throughout the movie, and it worked amazing. You know that he was a director as well in a sense that he knew the edit, the, the way that I wanted the tempo and the pace yeah. of it. And you know, but the first night we uh, sat out there and and then everybody was working on headlamps and they turned their headlamps off and it went pitch black. It was hilarious. I mean, it oh was like god. oh my god, yeah. Well, okay, let's go. Well, I saw some of the B roll footage of all the explosions. You doubled the number of action set pieces in this film from what we're used to seeing. <laughs> we called the last run. It was funny you said your email, but we called the last run. We always call it the Apocalypse Now run. 
you know, we said, <laughs> that was this is what we called it the napalm run. We go, this is the, we always called it like that. That one's the napalm run. We're going for it. But I love, but you know, it's first of all, thank you. And you know, it's um, it it's, I you know, we're 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 in this space right now with action movies, and we'll see what what I'm going to do next. But um, we're in this real weird space where we're dealing with bigger, faster, more expensive, more than I've ever seen before. Yeah. And it's gotten to the point that some of this stuff is so not physically possible anymore that there is no reality to it. And, and it's, it's completely gratuitous. Via t- yeah, it's gratuitous and it's full-blown visual effects. And in what and what I'm trying to do, and maybe I'll fail out, maybe I'll succeed, but I, but I always try to just follow my heart. And I'm trying to bridge the gap where I'm trying to create the same type of spectacle, but I'm trying to make sure that everything is back to being done in camera mm-hmm. with real technology, real effects, real people, and immersing yeah. the audience in that action ride that I try to do, but then give them on the scale at the same time, you know. And it's a it's a much more critical way of doing it. And um, will there be times then um, when people want to see stuff that's just over the top? We're seeing it, and they're loving it, and I love it. You know, mm-hmm. there's no fun. It's a lot of fun to have, see that type of escapism. But I want to get back to the way it was in the '70s, and you know, and I want to get back to the way. Um, I thought James Cameron was always one of the most brilliant um, people with action that always knew how to create action in camera and then would augment it with VFX and use it to be effective versus just going, ah, you know what, that can be a VFX. I'll just shoot it all green screen. I'll just be on the stage. It's a very lazy way to make films now, and Mm -hmm. it's also a way where you realize that people aren't attached to the action anymore. And when they're not attached to the action... They're not attached to the movie, no. and there won't be that repeat business. And so I'm trying to find a way to, to bridge that gap. But see, but that's the world you came out of. Yeah. You know, the, all the guys that, that I knew that I started working with 40 years ago, that's the world they came out of, the John Ford world. And coming up through that, it was all about Yeah, and Danny, Houston, and Danny Houston, I talked a lot about his father. He indulged me, you know. Yeah. We talk about those eras and these times when it was all real. And, you know, and I feel like, you know, um, uh, 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 Greenland should be a hundred million dollars. They literally told me there's no way you're going to make this movie under forty million the way and you want to take it. I'm like, get ready, we're going to do it. And we're going to shoot in thirty five days too, and we did it. You know, and I'm very proud of what we did. But what it does is it forces you to shoot it in camera. It forces you to mm-hmm. find the old school tricks that were always so provocative and worked yeah. versus being lazy. You know, yeah. and. And I love that. I love that it forces you to keep it real. And I think that the more that we do that in our world today, even at the level of the Fast and the Furiouses, and I love that Marvel's starting to get more into that too with some of the things that they're doing. It's because of the Russos. You know? Yeah, and the new and the new and the new type of um, character things they're doing with like Wonder Woman and Black mm-hmm. Panther, where they're they're stories that have real substance to them and they yeah. have something to say, and yet they're a big kick ass ride too. So. Yeah. You know, I always said maybe I wasn't going to be a part of those type of movies, but maybe I am. Maybe there is a, a, a there there is a there is a um, a gauntlet for me to run down that road, but that can give character and action at the same time, and, and create movies that have something to say. And I hope Angel Has Fallen has something to say, and we'll create debate. Oh. But same time, you come out laughing your ass off and have a great time. But now, because you now took you stepped into a franchise, first time you've come into a franchise. That's true. You made this a Rick Wall movie. With all of the heart and emotion that we saw in Felon, that we see with that which I love, mm-hmm. you know, even what you bring out with Dwayne in in Snitch, but and then of course Shot Caller is like off the charts in terms of the emotional beats and the emotionality. 
you bring all of that to an action film that's an established franchise, you step out of the box for yourself. So what did you learn about yourself with the experience of making this film that you'll now take forward with other projects, be it Greenland, be it something after that? I think it's um, having the confidence that it doesn't matter the scale of the movie, that you can, um, I think I was a little bit afraid that um, marching up into the big action um, summer tentpole fair meant that I was going to have to give up a lot of my sensibilities as a dramatic filmmaker. Um, and I think having a, um, a number one on the call sheet like Gerard Butler, who backed me every step and had the same vision I had, as long as I know that when I have the right dance partner, that um, I can work at any level um, that the studio wants to put out and I can create something that um, can be both, that can be this big action spectacle like this and be the summer blockbuster, but also work on a much more deep and complex way and bridge those two things together that they don't have to be either or. I think that's my big thing that I took away from this is that I can bridge them both together and I think Angel of Fallen is proof. And it starts with Gerard Butler, that he was fearless in his portrayal of Mike Banning and had no problems being vulnerable and had um, and show the flaws and to do things that other actors are like you want me to do what you know I mean and just being fearless um, I think when you have that kind of partner um, as a collaborator there's a reason that we just went two in a row yeah oh, it's it's the best thing you've ever done oh, thank you it's true and thank you know you know I mean that no I know trust me if it sucked you know, I would tell yeah, you. Yeah, on the, you, I would have got the email. You know, um, I reread the email um, when I got here because it was funny because when I looked out on my phone, I didn't know that you had wrote written underneath, and I thought you were just gonna give me how much you loved it. Yeah. And, then, and then when I got here, finally, because I um, I wait wait last night, you're you're always your attention to detail and in it yeah. is always impeccable. So thank you. It means a lot when you try to put things into the movies that that are there that you know that is seen. So thank you. And that was Rick Waugh. And there is still more of my interview with Rick Waugh that we don't have time for today. But there is one one anecdote that Nick revealed. Anybody that has seen Angel Has Fallen and has stayed through the credits. And again, stay through the credits, stay through the credits, because there is some hilarity to be had in the credits. Um, so you of all people will appreciate this great little anecdote uh, that Nick had that uh, Rick had to say about Angel Has Fallen and Nick Nolte. The best line in the whole movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with, you know, I'm going to pee in the pool. Did he pee in the pool? When I was in Washington, D.C., a reporter asked me um, how hard was it to get Nick Nolte to strip down to his boxers. I said, no, the hard part was making sure Nick Nolte kept his boxers this on. Is on. And did he pee in the pool? Like, down, I didn't go in it after, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> and... On that exciting note about Nick Nolte, his boxers, and wondering, did he pee in the pool or not? Um, that is all the time we have today for this very expanded edition of Behind the Lens. Thank you all. Thank you to our very, very special guest today, to Jason Axon, to your last death. Be on the lookout for that. For Justin Ward, Relish premiere at the Burbank Film Festival September 6th and of course Janice Engel Raise Hell The Life and Times of Molly Ivins August 30th in Texas New York September 6th LA September 13th 
and the Hollywood Sound Museum Movie Sound Appreciation Event right here in Hollywood at the Scum and Villainy Cantina on September 8th at 2.30. Be there. See, see three Oscars. Get your picture taken with Oscars. Have a chance for giveaways and talk to some of the great sound gurus of the industry, including Steve Lee, founder of Hollywood Sound Museum, Mark Mangini, who is Academy Award winner and who has been here live in studio on Behind the Lens before, and many others. So uh, we are not here next week. It is Labor Day. We will not be laboring next week. I'll be laboring, but it'll be at home and not in studio. Uh, and we'll be back on, what day are we back on? We're back on September 9th, which is already a full show with two returning guests who I love, Quincy Rose with a new film and Michelle Remsen, uh, whose film, we talked to her on the Fest circuit. Now she's got distribution. So thank you all. We will be back on September 9th. And until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. 